Hey, I'm Danielle. Hello, I'm Fran. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Hey, Fran, great to see you today. Good morning, Danielle. How are you? I'm great. Spring is in full swing here in North Georgia. I think we're finally starting to see some of the pollen go away because we've had a ton of rain, but been spending a lot of time outside. Um, did I tell you I built a greenhouse recently? No. It's gorgeous. We had a little screen porch, tiny little sectioned off area on our big front porch. You know, those big Southern front porches. The ceiling's blue, of course. Yes. Um, but I actually, I wanted to make better use of that space. And I found 30 old windows on Facebook Marketplace. And we just hung them up in the in the old little screen porch area. It was already framed out and built this great little greenhouse. So we're ready to plant our vegetable garden this week. And we picked up six new chicks to add to our, our backyard flock and they're they're hanging out in the greenhouse. So it's gorgeous outside. I did a little bit before I left to, to come to Charleston. I, um, I went and did uh, fertilizer on my eight big blueberry bushes but uh, I'm going to have to figure out how to keep the deer out of them because I got no blueberries last year because of the deer. <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot of deer. You live on a really cool property. Um, yeah, as you guys know, Fran and I, we live in North Georgia. We're both pretty near a big lake and uh, we really only live about eight minutes from each other. Um, but it's nice. We have some blueberry bushes too. And it's just amazing. You never know what you're going to find outside. But Regardless of the weather, it seems like a great day to talk about true crime. So what are we what are we doing today, Fran? Well, we're going to talk about one of the many cases that I've worked in Dawson County, Georgia. And in regard, it regards uh, marijuana and the infamous quaaludes or methicolone. Um, awesome. Also known as lemons or lemon 714. Yeah. And Dawson County is our direct neighboring county. So we, uh, yeah, it's interesting, Fran, I feel like as the weeks go on, we've gotten closer and closer to home for us. But um, Fran's cases are, are all based in Georgia in some way, shape or form. And, um, you know, I don't know, it's, it never ceases to amaze me how these stories, you know, shape the history of the Southeast. So I can't wait to get into the details. Um, let's kick it off here soon. All right, Fran, we're in 1981 this week. That's correct, Daniel. And in uh, 1981, I was still a young agent. Um, I'd been on the job for basically about five years. And um, there were 21 counties in the regional office that I worked. We worked as far as uh, north as the North Carolina line, and then all the way over to the South Carolina line, over to Elbert County. Kind of made a somewhat of a triangle in Northeast Georgia. Yeah. And um, Dawson County was a county that was assigned to me, along with uh, you know El Elbert County, and um, I also had Habersham and Gilmer, and White County. So each agent was responsible for handling, you know, their information that came into those counties by concerned citizens uh, and also by the sheriff's office that would call. So how this case, this particular case came about was um, I'd received uh, confidential informant information um, that advised me that there was uh, a gentleman I'll use that, use that term very loosely from <laughs> Dawson County, <laughs> who, uh, who was uh, known as Red. That's his nickname, because I really don't even remember his true name. His nickname was Red, because, of course, he had red hair. He's a tall, white male and uh, lived in a single-wide mo um, mobile home. Um, he had one arm. Red, so, the one-armed uh, man. He's the one-armed bandit. <laughs> so uh, myself and a couple of the other guys uh, wrote up the information to get a search warrant. And we went to this trailer. I remember going and searching the trailer. We were searching for marijuana. And uh, we didn't find anything in the house uh, in regards to the marijuana. But there was a, a, a 
somewhat of a barn shed. It wasn't really big. It was something like like 10 by 10. Okay, outside. just a little outbuilding. Everybody's got that's them up right. here. That's right. And so um, walked out there and um, we found a 55 gallon drum of uh, full of uh, quaaludes. They were in plastic bags, all labeled lemon 714. Oh boy. And next to the drum was a 40 to 50 pound bale of marijuana. Okay. So, uh, so of course he was arrested and processed at Dawson County. Uh, the sheriff, <laughs> the thing about Dawson County was at that period of time, John David Davis was the sheriff. And uh, he was kind of a very unique character. It was kind of like playing a game of chess with him. You had to think very many moves ahead of him. And he was very bright, very articulate, very yeah. much a businessman in his own county. Uh, he only got into trouble when he went somewhere else to, ha to help some somebody else. And he did get into trouble uh, when he did that in uh, Augusta, Georgia, and was um, indicted uh, in U.S. District Court over there and, and did serve time for that. Well, we'll talk about that case another day. But um, Sheriff Day, uh, John Davis was kind of like your your John Wayne type. That's the picture I'll portray of him. Okay. And I uh, had remembered prior to this investigation of Red and, and what we recovered at his trailer that I had a call uh, from Dawson County to come over there. And I think we talked about this earlier to, to look for some um, stolen property. Okay. Yep. The, uh, the sheriff called me into his office because we are, re we are re only able to work cases where the sheriff calls the district attorney, superior court judge, or the governor uh, instructs us to work a specific case. Oh, we that's how that works? In. Yeah, we can't just go in and do a case. Like if you had a burglary at your house, I just can't come and you know, work the burglary. It has to be requested by another law enforcement agency. Okay, thanks for clarifying, because I really yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't know that. So um, anyway, I went to Dawson County to the sheriff's office. Um, I had received this information, and I was going to tell the sheriff that I was going to do this search warrant that I just told you about. So I um, had my notebook. I walked into his office. He said, come on in. He closed the door, and you have to picture this room. It's fairly small. It's probably 12 by 12. Okay. Big metal desk, chair behind the desk. You walk in, there's two just regular chairs to my left, and he's sitting behind the desk. He comes from the behind the desk, sits on the corner of the desk, kind of, you know, kind of blocking me in from going out the door. Yeah. So I opened my notebook, and I said, um, I wanted to let you know that we're going to be doing a search warrant at Red's trailer. And he, he, he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, we're writing it up right now and, you know, we're going to hit it in the morning. Do you want to send a deputy? So I kind of knew I was, uh, you know, tempting the fate of there would be nothing there, which scared me because when we were in the trailer, there was nothing there. Right. So that, that was a test for him to determine whether he was going to tip the guy off or not. Yeah, sure. So he looked at me, and I guess this was a, a test for me from him. He looked at me, and um, he said, I'll never forget it. He said, uh, what's your price? And I, and I kind of cringed and looked at him, and he says, Everybody has a price, Fran. What's your price? So he's expecting you to be a little crooked too? Uh, yeah. Okay. He was expecting me to be crooked. Yeah, he didn't know you. <laughs> Wrong answer. Yeah. Wrong answer. So uh, so I was I was in shock. I, you know, I'd never been approached like that by a senior law enforcement officer. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty brazen to just assume that you can get somebody in your pocket when 
they're an upper level law enforcement agent. I mean, that's a really big risk. Absolutely. What, what did you like, what happens when so he's, he's sitting on the corner of his desk, his legs are kind of dangling off and kind of out in front where I, I stood up, folded my notebook in half. I was, I was steaming mad. I was so angry. I was trying to compose myself to yeah. what, as, as to what to say. And I um, got up to turn to go to the door and I turned around, I got the door open and turned around and I said, Sheriff, you don't have enough money. And I walked out and slammed the door. Good for you, Fran. God, you are a badass. That's awesome. I, I went straight back to the office and uh, told my supervisor, who was uh, the agent in charge, his name was R.C. Mac McCracken. We called him Mac. Yeah. And Mac was old school. He was, he was old enough to be my father. His retirement was not far away at all. And, um, you know, he was looking forward to, to getting out of this. He was one of the original, you know, one of the few young troopers that switched over to investigative division. Yeah. And uh, his his story was that, you know, back then, back in the day, he only ever had to worry about rob bank robbers and robberies and, uh, you know, murders and killers and stuff like that. Nothing like what I was dealing with, with drugs. Right. I walked in and I told him what was going on. And he said, and he, and he made the comment. He said, you can go on and do your search warrant. But he said, there's nothing going to be there. I said, okay. So I did. I went on and we did the search warrant at Red's trailer. Like I said, we didn't find anything in the house. Yeah. Then somebody said, there's a shed outside. So we went out and searched the shed. Now, let me ask you a question. So when you get a search warrant for somebody's house, does that extend to the rest of the property or is that like a different type of search warrant where you get to search the whole property? No, in the body of the search warrant document, it says all, all uh, buildings, all out to include all outbuildings. Okay. Basically okay. what it says. So you're searching the entire property. Okay. And um, in some cases you may, if you wanted to search a, a well or a, a uh, pond or something like that you would be more specific so it doesn't get excluded sure. you know in in uh, court so um anyway going back to mr red he um uh, he was a good old boy he's probably one of john's good old boys and um he went to trial not many people would go to trial you know when you got five thousand quaaludes and a 40 to 50 pound bale of marijuana on your property right. well his defense was he didn't know anything about it. Oh yeah, and I'm sure. He had let he had let a friend use the the uh, shed. What okay? a stale story! So it wasn't his; it was <laughs> a friend's that he doesn't remember his name. Of course, oh, that's so convenient. Yeah. So went to trial. He of course he was indicted with the grand jury in Dawson County. Go to trial within six months, and that's the story. That's the story he, he laid out in his defense. And I don't know if it was because he only had one arm or what. Didn't find anything in the house. They found him not guilty. And the no day, way. I'll never forget it. Yeah, not guilty. The day that the jury came back in, there was one guy on the jury that kept looking at me. And I was at the table with the prosecutor. He kept looking and he would smile. Like I said to myself, this, no. guy, this, is, this guy is a dead. He is a ringer for sure. I knew, I knew something was bad was going to happen. Oh, he was shit. just like over there smiling and, and he's, he just had this aura about him. Like it's going to be not good for him. So when you say smiling, I think what you actually mean is like shit eating grin. Yes, that's exactly right. You um, took the words. You got unbelievable. The words well, I mean, seriously, that is like the oldest story in the book. Well, it wasn't mine. It's kind of like the dog ate my homework, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. And I understand that probably Red was physically incapable of moving a 50-pound bale of marijuana across, yeah. I mean, anywhere, right? With only one arm. And then, you know, 55-gallon drum, that's the equivalent of like what people use as like a rain barrel, you know? That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, I get that, but I mean, are you telling me seriously that they thought he had no accomplices? I mean, yeah, that guy on the jury definitely had a hand in that. Yeah. 
So jury came back, found him not guilty. He walked and uh, that was very frustrating, but uh, you know, we did get the drugs. Yeah. He didn't go to jail. You know, he went on to do whatever he was doing. I don't know if he was uh, tipped off by the sheriff, you know, that night because we did go the next morning. So I never, I mean, I never, never knew that, but I always suspected that. Well, I mean, the minute the sheriff asks you to play dirty, um, I mean, that's just a huge red flag. I mean, no pun intended. We're talking about red, the one-armed bandit here. But, you know, there's, on this planet, I'm assuming that, you know, they were in each other's pockets and working together. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Right. Well, you got to remember that that period of time um, in Georgia, there were a lot of sheriffs that were had been in, in office for a long time. And the National Sheriff's Association didn't start requiring mandate training for sheriffs until 1980. And Georgia was the first state in the country to require that. Up really? until that time, you could have a criminal record. You could have felonies. Yeah. Whoa. And then Georgia state law uh, says, you know, as of that time, 1980, that, that said that you cannot be a sheriff if you have any kind of felony conviction and you must have a high school diploma or the equivalent. But, um, you know, those, those things help turn around the quality and caliber of candidates that are sheriffs today. Yeah. Um, back in the day, it was the good old boy that was sheriff. I mean, and I'm not saying that John Davis was a bad sheriff. Everybody right. loved him. Everybody loved him. And he was a good man and he did a lot of good things, but he also was a crook. Yeah. He also had a moonshine conviction which uh, from 1966, which, you know, gave him a lot of um, contacts in the underworld, I'll say, and uh, Street led him to, yeah, led him to his, you know, demise in law enforcement and end up in federal prison for uh, cocaine and, uh, and drug smuggling over in Augusta, Georgia in U.S. District Court. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, you always find a way to shock me, but I think it's, um, it's kind of really a wake up call to consider the fact that there wasn't a standard of, you know, quality, I guess you would say for somebody's past in order to determine whether you're eligible or not to be the sheriff. And I mean, I'm thinking back to, you know, I'm trying to place myself in North Georgia in the eighties. And while these counties that we talk about were, they're all quite vast, you know, land wise, um, but not quite as densely populated as we see now, you know, I mean, we're still on the, we're on the fringe of the suburbs of Atlanta. Um, but we've seen a lot of growth in our area, you know, over the past 20 years or so. Um, so, I mean, this is a lot of people to be responsible for. Um, and it's, it's kind of wild that somebody who <laughs> was like a convicted felon and trafficker is the one that gets the final word here. So yeah, I'm he sure did his receive, were deep. He did receive a presidential pardon. Um, I think in 1971, um, I did read up on that, but back in the, you gotta, you've got to kind of understand where their mentality was for these old sheriffs back in the sixties, the, the sheriff's income was actually derived largely from the cut that um, was taken from the fines that were levied against these criminals. Okay. okay. So that's how the sheriff got his salary. Yeah. So therefore, uh, the, the practice of his payment was solely given by, you know, the number of fines that they took in, the number of right. people that they arrested. There was, uh, there was, there's a story that I recall being told to me about um, a sheriff in, in North Georgia Mountain County that worked in concert with a bootlegger. And the story went that uh, every time his, he, he sold the moonshine, he would tip off the sheriff, uh, who would then arrest the guy, the customer, as he was leaving the county. And then the, the sheriff would arrest him. He would get money for arresting him. He would, he would you know, uh, confiscate the moonshine, the liquor, then yeah. he would turn the liquor back over to his bootlegger and then they would do it all over again. 
and they, they're just know, like the recycling. <laughs> it was a revolving door. That's crazy. Well, and you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I kind of need to backtrack a little bit in my bewilderment of like a sheriff having a criminal history, you know, it's like, there is an argument to be made that somebody could be really good at that job if they have knowledge of the inner workings, you know, of the criminal mind. So, but this like just completely proves that point. I mean, legitimately revolving door. It was a a practice that was so uh, solely by its nature, it lent to being, you know, abused. So, uh, you know, and as, as time progressed and, main date training came in better sheriffs came in um you know those those kind of things went away with just with history and time and that the evolution of the sheriff's office you know the 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 people trying to get a better quality of sheriff well and i think um you know it it almost helps you lend yourself to have more respect for those who were able to stay straight, we'll say, because it was almost made so easy for somebody in that authoritative position to slip onto the dark side. You know what I mean? Right. There were, there were many sheriffs that that I worked with who were good men, well-respected in their County. Uh, And I think the, the age of technology uh, as it came around, change the good old boy sheriff um that job um they i would walk in back in the day and in a in a remote county and i'd say where where's the uh where's the you know the rec report for so-and-so or where's this and they literally go to a shoebox and pull it out you know they went from a shoebox to a computer so uh, a lot a lot of that has changed the uh the organization and the accountability that the public demanded and so it has evolved a great deal. Um, sheriff Davis was one of three sheriffs that I actually uh, worked on to get indicted in Georgia. The other two sheriffs uh, was uh, the sheriff from Elbert County was Charles Starrett. And then the Crisp County Sheriff in Cordell was the other sheriff that I uh, worked a case on. And... Um, you know, over over the years, and I even, I mean, I had the same feelings about this as people, I think, primarily in the North uh, and out West. They probably think of the, short, the, the Southern sheriff as this, you know, pot-bellied buffoon kind of guy. <laughs> but yeah. uh, in real life, you know, he's pretty shrewd. He's a, a country politician, uh, and, he, and he rules like a king. You know, that's his kingdom, and he has so much power. Yeah. That, um he uh you know rules with an iron hand yeah um, the lure of uh excitement of the job itself uh money you know that uh he can make things disappear yeah like tickets and you know uh on occasion i guess people people know. evidence yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it just and, it. and it just it just reminded me of another case when i said people disappear there was a case that i worked where a young man from Dawson County disappeared and his car with him in it ended up in the Ohio river. What? So, you know, it's, uh, and, he, and, and the way they found it was the, the they had to di- divert part of the river or something. And here's this car with a Georgia tag and a body in it. I flew wow. it to Ohio and it was a guy that had been missing for like 15 years. Wow. So wh- why did that happen? Right. Why is he in Ohio? Why does he have a, you know, a bullet in his head, you know? So, you know, those are, those are things that, that, that happened that, you know, I had to deal with, but you know, the, the, the lure of the excitement and the lure of the big money by drug dealers, you know, they were waving 10,000, $20,000 payoffs to sheriffs and police officers. Um, And, you know, for, for those guys, it was a no brainer. I remember another case that we worked um, I think it was in Hiawassee in Towns County. And we arrested some drug dealers and there was a suitcase and it had $20,000 in cash in the suitcase. And we had done this deal at a motel and we had the, we'd gone in and arrested them and suitcase was on the bed. 
And when the deputy got there, his eyes were so big, he said, and he looked at that and he says, I don't even make that in a year. Well, that yeah. kind of money. I mean, how easy is it in that situation back in the day? It's procedurally, I know it's different now and there's more hands, there's more eyes on scene and, you know, just a better standard operating procedure for protocol of how you work a crime scene. But, um, you know, what's to say or who's to stop somebody from taking that top layer of cash out of that suitcase? That's right. And then it's like, Scary. you know, you could have the whole suitcase. So I can imagine that um, just like anything else, there's an evolution to the criminal process and how deep you are into it, especially in a position of power. That's true. And it, it didn't just cross the law enforcement line. Um, this is a, another kind of a side branch to the story. Um, we used to kind of joke at the office about how many people from Atlanta would drive to Dawson County and claimed that they owned a, a parcel of property on, you know, um, one of the roads in Dawson County, and they would buy their car tag there. So uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, there were, in 1980, there was approximately 5,000 people, according to the census, that lived in Dawson County. Wow. And uh, if you went to pull the tag registration, uh, tag registration was about 10,000. No way. Yes. <laughs> and so we did, we, we did something that was never done before. One of the agents in the office, his name's Paul Loggins. He, um, he said, I think I can get the revenue department in Georgia to give us a printout of all of the tags in Dawson County. I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So he did, and, and they came across on that. You remember that green paper that used to come on the machine that rolled and oh, rolled yeah, and totally. rolled? Oh, yeah, totally. That's how old it is. So anyway, we got this. It was about eight inches thick, you know, and it was probably, what, 18 inches wide paper. Wow. And it was full of all of – it was done uh, alphabetically and tag number, you know. And so when we would uh, get a tag number, we'd look it up on here and – it would be, you know, to some some address that did not even exist in Dawson County, but they got a Dawson County tag, but the person actually lived in, you know, Stone Mountain or Buckhead or wherever. They were just cheap bastards that wanted to get a cheap tag. So, so that was funny, but the, the guy in the tag office, he, he did not like me at all, and he knew I was after him because I was trying to catch him because... Uh, you know, that they were looking at, at the revenue part of it. They were just looking at trying to get some more income, you know. So, uh, yeah, we that was that was kind of funny. That was kind of our pet peeve with him. We would go in there and visit him and say, how many how many tags are sold today? You know? So he knew he knew that we knew, but there was never enough evidence to put him in jail. I mean, you had a criminal in every corner. Yeah, pretty much. I know you've got more. I think for I me. was pretty pretty lucky to survive Dawson County after they put that hit out on me. I was pretty lucky. Yeah, let's talk about that when we come back from commercial break. Brian, you always have me on the edge of my seat, and I end up with like secondhand anxiety, even though I know you're okay because you know <laughs> this was like forty years ago. Um, and you're sitting here with me on Zoom right now, but I'm like squirming in my chair over here. Well, it's still pretty fresh, I, even though it's 40 years old in most of these cases. Um, and it's, it's pretty unusual that I can remember most things. I can't, I, I remember the cases and what they were about and the people. I just sometimes I can't remember their names. I um, have a lot of details. I mean, that's, Think of all the things you've learned in 40 years. It's, again, I mean, I say this every week, I feel like, but the fact that you have such limited access to data on these cases and can just spit all this out is remarkable. But then again, it doesn't really surprise me because I know how invested you were in your work and how focused you were. And these are scary situations. And I, I feel like it is a bit of trauma and it's not like it just, evaporates over time so well no I mean I did retire on post-traumatic stress disorder but most people know what that is today it's one of those silent killers I think you know yeah. 
uh, a lot of uh, military people and law enforcement people have that in their retirement history. Yeah, it takes away it from the inside. It doesn't go away. Yeah. Right. Mo movies in your brain don't go away. That's, that's the part the part that gets you. They uh, they just keep playing whether you like it or not. Well, and I mean, having a hit put out on you has to be one of the most terrifying movies that you replay in your head. Well, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was. It was, I think, oh, pretty much a shock. And you say so, it so casually, like, yeah, everybody's had a, a hit put out on them. But. No, they, no, they haven't. And uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I guess taking away millions of dollars worth of someone's income is enough to, to uh, put a hit out on somebody. The, how that came about was um, I had been assigned by Paul Carter, who was the deputy director of the investigative division for the GBI. Uh, I'd already worked the Gilmer County cocaine case with the cows over in uh, Carter K that, that had already gone to trial. Yeah. And Paul Carter had called and said, I want you to go to Augusta. Uh, we have information on Sheriff John Davis and uh, from Dawson County and Sheriff Charles Sterrett from Elbert County and help the, uh, there was another female agent over there named Angie Miller. Uh, and uh, there was an investigative clerk also assigned from the GBI over there. We were working with uh, U.S. Customs and the Internal Revenue Service and the and the FBI office out of Augusta. So I went and I ended up staying about six months. I would go, you know, I drive down on a Monday and I come home on a Friday from Gainesville. But uh, what this case was huge uh, and um, it's too much to go into in just this one session, but I'll basically gen in generalities talk about how it affected me with this hit that was put out on me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on December the 7th of 1984, uh, John David Davis, who was the sheriff of Dawson County. Yep. At the time, uh, Robert Lee Anderson, uh, which is, uh, he was known as Buster Anderson, Opry Felton Lowe, and Ronnie Berg Mills. And Ronnie Berg Mills was a former um, revenue agent in Georgia. So he was a former law enforcement officer, too. They were convicted by a jury in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Georgia uh, on several charges arising out of a big drug conspiracy. Uh, they were, um, uh, this drug smuggling scheme was really directed by the main player who was known as Larry Douglas Evans. And his nickname was affectionately known as Red because oh. he had red hair. Another Red? <laughs> Another red in the story. And so uh, Red, as I'll, I'll call him, Red Evans, was actually the sweet mate of John Davis when John Davis went to the federal prison in 1966. Okay. So that's the connection. So Red Evans asked uh, John Davis to come down to uh, the Broad River area of Lincolnton, Georgia, Lincoln County, and other areas to uh, help do security for the importation of a, a DC-3 coming in to offload marijuana and other basically ground security uh, for importation of loads of marijuana. Okay. So that's why uh, Sheriff Davis was indicted for doing that. And and he did do that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Uh, and uh, also Sheriff Starrett did that and, and received large quantities of money for doing that from Red Evans. So um, the government's case at that time was based uh, entirely on the testimony of other co-conspirators. Um, and uh, like I said before, John Davis was the sheriff of Dawson County at this time. And he actually, as the, as the, indictment came back around he he was uh he was running for sheriff again and was the people of the county actually you know uh voted him in during the time he was under indictment which was pretty pretty uh 
to me abnormal. Yeah, that's like <laughs> unprecedented. But I think yeah. it's a testament to like how many people he had in his pocket, you know? Right. So yeah. uh several things happen. Uh, the the government that presented evidence that uh, John Davis participated in the importation of marijuana to South Georgia area as well in June of 1981. Uh, Sheriff Davis also made arrangements for Larry Evans to bribe Sheriff Charles Sterrett of Albert County. Uh, uh, and in, in return for his aid in the importation plan, he provided him, of course, with money. Robert Lee Anderson was connected uh, by another government witness uh, to the same drug transaction in June of 1981 and to other numerous marijuana deals conducted by Larry uh, Evans at a local restaurant. Um, Opry Felton Lowe was a farmer who had conducted uh, a lot of um, construction and with heavy equipment uh, and, and made, um, you know, dirt strips for these airplanes to come in. Okay, yeah. And all these meetings took took place at a, at a restaurant that was being used for their meetings. Um, Is that restaurant Ronnie still Mills. here? Should we go get lunch? No, I think they're closed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ronnie Mills was a former Georgia State Revenue agent, and he acted basically as a lookout for Evans at the airstrips used to fly the uh, aircraft in. And uh, he provided Evans with uh, useful information concerning surveillance activities of you know, regular law enforcement in the area. So all of these guys were convicted. Um, during that period of time, I don't know if it was John Davis or if it was Starrett or if it was uh, Larry Evans. I never met Larry Evans, but Charles Starrett and John Davis both knew me. And um, it came to my attention through my boss that, that um, Buster Anderson, which is one of the defendants here, Robert Lee Anderson, mm -hmm. had um, placed a hit on me um, to kill me during this case. Oh, so, my uh, God. Yeah, I had to lay low, had to, you know, usually had another agent with me during this time. And yeah. uh, I did testify in the case. And um, so that was uh, very troublesome. Yeah, it's <laughs> horrifying, say. honestly. Well, you do, you just don't know what people are going to do when they're going to lose their their livelihood, their livelihood and their yeah. entire family lifestyle changes. Well, and these guys are so well connected across counties, across the state, across the southeast, and you know, even internationally. And you just any person on the street could be working for them and. I mean, I don't even know how you ever escape that feeling. It has to be really suffocating to just not know who's going to be the one that tries to pull the trigger. That's right. It's so awful, Fran. God, I'm glad you're here. I mean, I think that goes without saying, but holy cow. Well, it was uh, it was quite stressful at the time. I, I uh, knew what I was getting to, into based on just what my father did for all those years right. at Tybee. He was a policeman for 30 years at Tybee, and he told me about a few cases where, you know, people would threaten him. And on one occasion, a man pulled a pulled a gun on him. He was drunk. He'd gone to the house and threatened his wife. And he was going to kill her and the children. And my dad told me that story of how he you know, pulled a gun on him and pointed it at him. And my, my father could have shot and killed him without any problem. But um, it was uh, it was the fact that the man was was totally drunk. And my father just talked him down and was able to get the gun away from him. And my dad said the next morning he came down to the police station and with his family. And he was so terribly shaken and crying and upset that he had done that he said it just was a real awakening for him and he was never going to drink again that is extremely powerful i mean i don't know fran there's two types of people in this world there's people like you and your dad who are so brave and then there's people like me who would just pee all over themselves so <laughs> you you say there's two types of people i say there's three types i'll tell you my types okay what's the three types type? of people okay you have <laughs> 
you have the sheep, okay? okay? And there's lots of sheep out there in the world that walk around. They don't have a clue what the hell's going on, okay? Yeah. And then you have the wolves. And those wolves are out preying on those sheep. Then you have the lions, okay? I'm a lion. I eat the wolves. That's right, that baby. the sheep. <laughs> okay? So Ugh. if you want to call me a lion, I'm okay with that. You're the best. You're the best. Well, speaking of wolves, I want to go back to the Quaaludes because, you know, I'm a 1983 baby. And this case that we've discussed today takes place in 1981. And, you know, so this is before my time. And, you know, I mean, I knew about Quaaludes, but then the movie The Wolf of Wall Street came out. And I think that everybody sort of in my age bracket learned a little bit more. Um First of all, you said that he had like a maybe 50 gallon or 50 pound bale of pot in that barn, right? We're right. talking red, the one-armed bandit. So yeah I, yeah, I love those numbers. I love the translation. So in, in that year, 1981, pot was going for about 600 a pound. So we're looking at the equivalent there of about, you know, you know, $30,000, give or take. Right. Um, but the quaaludes, this is, this is what fascinates me. So you described a 55 gallon drum um, that you said was probably about 5,000 pills in there stamped 714, the lemon 714s. So in my research and in yours, and you know, this was subject to change and I'm going to talk to you a bit about the history of Quaaludes next, but these pills would go from anywhere from eight to $20 a pop. Um, So we're talking anywhere from 40 to a hundred thousand dollars just in quaaludes. Um, but I think we should talk about what they really are. So quaaludes, um, methaquaylone is the, um, scientific name for it, right? This is what's considered now to be a retro drug, but it was a depressant first synthesized in the 1950s and like extremely widely prescribed, particularly in, you know, the Western world in the United States. Um, it was supposed to be, you know, it was marketed as a safer alternative to barbiturates. And, you know, in like the the beatnik generation, um, thinking like back to Jack Kerouac, how much he used to write about benzodiazepine and barbiturates. Um this was sort of what replaced that. And what ends up in, in today's world, what has replaced quaaludes is, you know, Valium, Lithium, Xanax, things of the like. So um, the quaaludes are prescribed to reduce anxiety, help with insomnia. Um, you know, when you would take them, it would induce a sort of, you know, hypnotic or hazy or soothing feeling, right? Um, so if you could kind of resist falling asleep when you've taken your ludes, um, it'd give you a really potent high, which actually was a low because it's a depressant, right? So side effects would start in about 30 minutes and last up to eight hours for a regular dose. But the problem is that they were so majorly addictive and your body would get used to it that the user would need to take more and more. And there was really no over-prescribing it at that time. It seemed like a free-for-all in my research. And I'll definitely include the articles that I referenced in our show notes. But, um, you know, with the barbs and the benzos becoming so stigmatized, people were reliant on anxiety medications and, you know, sleeping pills. And so this is what replaced them. And they hit their peak popularity in the 70s and the early 80s. And it I feel in my research that I'm seeing people are referring to them almost with fondness, <laughs> you know, because people yeah. people really enjoyed these pills, Fran. And they were known as disco biscuits um, or the love drug because, you know, that um, losing your inhibitions sort of feeling, going out partying, um, uh, everybody loved these for sex too, you know, kind of just made everybody feel at ease, I guess. But what happened was in 1983, Congress made these a schedule one narcotic. And so what do you think happened? There's still a demand and this is where we go illicit. So the black market for quaaludes is established at this point. And 
it was such a cultural symbol of the times. And that brings us to, you know, present day where we have the movie Wolf of Wall Street and Quaaludes are all over the place in that movie. Um, in fact, Leonardo DiCaprio had to get with um, the real Jordan Belfort, who is who the movie is based on. He was a famous financial crimes guy, um, stock market manipulation. Um, but anyway, Jordan had to teach Leonardo DiCaprio how to act as if he was on Quaaludes. So there is some lost footage, we'll call it, of them like literally crawling on the floor and drooling and basically just acting like morons who had had too many quaaludes. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is what you're finding. This is what you're up against. And this is what's being distributed across North Georgia and really across all of the United States. But I thought it'd be really interesting to take a bit of a deep dive into exactly what this is and, and why people are trafficking it. So if we circle back to the money, you know, in 1981, we probably were on the lower end of the street value because it was still um, able to be prescribed. So maybe we were sitting closer to that $40,000 mark. But as 1983 rolls around and um, they stopped manufacturing it, um, the value only skyrocketed. So I can only imagine, you know, if people were still able to get their hands on them, how much money they were making. Well, they were making a lot more money with uh, drugs than they did with marijuana. Yeah. I mean, with not with marijuana, but with uh, moonshine. Yeah. You know, and it was a lot easier to conceal quaaludes than it was to conceal gallons of moonshine. Yeah. Or um, pounds of pot, you know, yeah. or kilos of coke. So, you know, it's unbelievable. The profit was a lot better. Yeah. And uh, I think it'll, I think drugs will, you know, they're, they're here to stay. They're going, they're always going to be out there to supply. Well, they've always the demand been here. for them. Yeah, it's always you know, ancient Romans had their vices. Um, even the Egyptians. I mean, inebriants are just part of part of life. Everybody's going to seek out uh, a different feeling for whatever reason. So, True. yeah, they're, they've been here forever. They'll be here forever. It's just that their actual chemical composition and availability and all of that changes with time. So. Well, I'm uh, just sitting over here in awe again about Red the One-Armed Bandit. Um, do you have anything else that you that you want to add before we wrap this one up? Well, not today. I think we could talk a lot about the uh, big smuggling case that I worked in Augusta, and I have a, a, another female agent that I work with. I'm going to try to get in touch with her and see if she would be willing to come on board and talk about that case. Awesome. Also have uh, my supervisor at the time in Gainesville. Uh, his name is uh, Gary Garner. He was a special agent in charge that has a very interesting case that he worked. And um, he went undercover and was uh, solicited to kill um, a uh, gubernatorial candidate for governor. Whoa. back in the day yeah so it's quite an interesting case and uh he was he was uh, solicited by roscoe dean who was running for governor and he uh has quite a, a large tale to tell about that story and <laughs> he's quite a storyteller in his own work that's awesome so, well so i mean uh, we're hoping we can do that next week we'll get that one get that one on board because uh he's very very much a character in, in, in his undercover capacity. Well, I mean, every one of your stories, I just find riveting. And um, I'm just so grateful that you share them with me. And hey, we need to give a big thank you to our listeners because we've seen tremendous support here in our first couple of weeks in the infancy of our podcast. And I mean, we're going to keep going for sure. This is so much yes. fun for us. It is. And there's, there's other cases that continue to come forward in my memory that I that I want to talk about. Danielle, I just wanted to put a word out to those people that might be listening to our podcast that um, there are cases out there that are not solved that that are what we call cold cases. And um, if there are anything that we can do to help 
move those cases forward in some way, please let us know through our contact information and we'll be glad to take a look at that for them and see if yeah. can, we can give them any ideas to make that help go forward. Absolutely. And particularly for our listeners in Georgia, um, if you go back and sort through our episodes, we have a bonus episode that was um, published between episodes three and four. And that's about a cold case out of Jackson County, um, Georgia, the Josh Adams disappearance. Um, he's been missing for about 10 years. So if you want to give that a listen and share that with your contacts in Georgia, we do really hope to um, sort of pepper in some bonus episodes about some ongoing cold cases as we move forward, because, you know, we've got Fran and her expertise, and it's always really interesting to hear that perspective. That's that's really what makes this podcast unique, I think, is that we have a very special lens that we see things through because we have um, we have Fran's vast knowledge um, to assist us and help us understand and sort of put these pieces together. So, um, well, I'm so grateful for so many things and want to give another shout out to CB Hackworth, a friend of the podcast who is a renowned investigative journalist who actually wrote quite a bit about Fran's cases back in the eighties. And he's been feeding us, um, screenshots of articles that he'd written and we're sharing those on our social media. So thanks again, CB. We're excited to have you as part of our team and we'll be coming back to you next week with another story about somebody doing something bad. That's right, Daniel. Well, thanks again, Fran. Appreciate you. Bye for now. And please behave. We'll see you next time. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. Find us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. Your listens, follows, likes, and shares help our show greatly and are much appreciated. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. 